Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Happy podcast day! It's so nice to see your smiling face. I am smiling. You are. And it's nice to see yours. (laughs) Episode 14. Wow. It does feel like wow. It does. I'm excited about the every week full episode. I like this change. I do too. It's so, I mean... You know, it took some time to make sure we had scheduling and bandwidth, but I'm happy with it. I hope the listener is too. Yeah, me too. So what's up? Oh, you know, I was like, the sky. (laughs) (laughs) I just been reading, been watching, you know. Yeah. What have you been reading and watching? Well, reading, I've been reading this fantasy series called the old kingdom series by garth nix how is it good so far it was basically a reddit thread that was like what are book series that you think should have been just as popular as harry potter but weren't Mm, interesting like oh this is interesting and so i've read the first three in the series and i was like oh this is very fun it's got like really good world building a very interesting system of rules governing magic Mm -hmm. so yeah so far so good cool what else and watching great british bake-off (laughs) (laughs) um foundation what's that it's an apple tv show also like a space fantasy Mm. uh i just watched dune Nice. How was it? So good. Timothy. Yeah, Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> the movie is like simultaneous. I mean, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The cinematography and visual effects are incredible. So it's like simultaneously visually epic and like a pretty intimate story, like intimate performances. It's like a really nice juxtaposition. I I was a big, big fan. Oh, nice. I've never read the book. I never saw the original. So I went in like fully unaware. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is good. Oh, maybe I'll check it out. Yeah, I've never read the book or seen the other movie. I don't know. It's a part one. Oh, really? So it ends very similarly like Lord of the Rings where it'll (sighs) just... Stops. Stop. (laughs) Like, I think the last line of the movie was like, and this is only the beginning. <laughs> uh, okay, maybe then I'll wait till they're all out. I don't have any but, capacity to wait. And also, my memory now is so bad that <laughs> then I can't remember <laughs> what happened. <laughs> but very good. I'm, I'm impressed with Denis Villeneuve. Ah, interesting. Cool. What about you? Well, let's see. I watched the documentary about Chris Watts last night for the first time. The one that is made using, I mean, it's not found footage, but using her own video clips. Um, Uh And I had been putting it off just, I don't know. It's so grim, you know, a documentary with, her own footage. I don't know. It just felt almost too personal and intimate. Um, Mm -hmm. But my husband wanted to watch it. So I did. And 
I mean, it's it's disturbing, but yeah, I don't know. It was good. It was good. I would recommend it. But it's one of those cases that is so covered. You already kind of know pretty much everything that is revealed in there. But my husband went down a rabbit hole. He could not accept that the girlfriend was not involved. And so uh-huh. he came to me this morning with links and like articles <laughs> about her. And like, he's like, I just, she was involved. I didn't know she was involved. And <laughs> um, just one person's opinion. We're not making any claims here on this show. Allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly, he believes that she was allegedly involved for sure. 100% <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> so it's interesting because. You know, he likes watching crime, but he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't usually go down those paths of researching stuff. So it was just kind of a nice little crossover where he was kind of getting into it at the same level that I do pretty much. But yeah, so that was good. Um, What else? I don't know. I feel like all of my shows kind of ended recently. So I'm just floundering. Haven't been watching a lot of TV. I feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I've like been hanging out with people more but that's not super interesting (laughs) oh yeah got booster oh my kids got vaccinated first dose five Pfizer baby so yeah that's a big thing I mean there's they still don't have full protection Mm -hmm. yet but that was a big milestone yeah get your kids vaccinated let's all do stuff again I got my booster too yay vaccines are just amazing i mean it's amazing technology get them yes. be healthy be safe do it be alive stay alive ha, 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 ha. Stay alive. <laughs> i always think of the office which i hate to be that basic mm, so basic so the, the episode where they're learning cpr and they're like you do it to the tune of staying alive and then they sing it so slowly. Where they're just like, ha, 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 ha. And then the instructor's just like, no. That's not that song. <laughs> I'm that jerk who likes the English version better and never watched the American version. I watched the American version for the first time recently. And boy, oh boy, are the last couple seasons garbage. Yeah. Well, in fairness, they're like really good seasons for a couple characters, but for the overall show, it should have stopped the second Steve Carell left. Yeah. yeah. Allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why the British system of having shorter series, and I don't mean like how many of them, but like, they don't try to film 30 episodes in a season, you know, it's like mm-hmm. shorter, better episodes. And yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just a weird mix because I'm so basic in some ways. And then in other ways, I can be very snooty when it comes to British television. I watched a great British TV show. Well, great to me. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. It's Ghosts. Ghosts. That sounds familiar, but I haven't seen it. It's a comedy. Uh-huh. Um, this young couple inherits a house, and the house is full of ghosts. Mm-hmm. And the woman, she, like, 
falls out is pushed out of a window by a ghost doesn't sound like much of a comedy but (laughs) she temporarily dies but is resuscitated and now she comes back to the house and she can see the ghosts i'm looking this up right as you and one of the ghosts was like an mp that had a sex scandal so he's like walking around in underwear the whole time another one was like a scout leader that got shot in the neck with an arrow (laughs) there's so it's like ghosts there's like a neanderthal ghost like ghosts from all different eras that are like coexisting in this house and i'm not selling it great but it's it's a very funny comedy okay i've got to see this then all right add to watch list boom oh that sounds good i love i love british shows i mean i don't know it's weird because i don't like the monty python like benny hill do they even belong in the same category i'm not sure but like that that kind i don't like but modern british humor i enjoy and then obviously the murder mysteries and those things yeah there's some really great moments in this show did you see that Luther is getting a movie on Netflix? Really? Yeah. Did you see that series? Uh, I did not watch, but I know of it. Uh, Idris Elba, how can you not watch that show? And now it's getting a movie. Excited. Well, maybe now that a movie is coming, it's... it'll finally be time. Yeah, it's worth it. It's a good show. Amazing. Would you give it five stars? I mean, I would give it 4.5 for sure. But if it was five stars, it would be like our five-star reviews. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm so bad at transitions. I, like, am negative at transitions. I actually subvert transitions. (laughs) You really tried there with me, but... Well, and I knew you loved it, so I was like, she's going to say five. <laughs> I'm the transition buster. But listener, we're trying to honor our word about reading five-star reviews. <laughs> uh, we had a little bit of a backlog, uh, but we got a review from Jen titled, Love This New Podcast. I listen to a lot of true crime, and I love the unique look at how these crimes have affected pop culture. Really awesome premise. Interesting and thought-provoking. Can't wait for more. Awesome. Well, guess what? If you're listening, there's more right now. Yeah. Did they say that Um, Kirsten is interesting and adorable? Yeah. I I forgot the last line. (laughs) And Kirsten is so good at transitions. (laughs) And I love her new haircut. <laughs> this and person has knows you well. Such a rich and full life that leads to plenty <laughs> of banter. <laughs> but if you want to leave us a message and be sure that we'll read it and we'll even read it aloud, if you leave a five star review <laughs> on Apple Podcast, we will read it. <laughs> and it I mean, just give us those five stars. It can be a recipe for a food you like. It can be... Totally. A list of facts that we got wrong, whatever it may be. For sure. I mean, we're open to whatever. Because the bottom line is, there's an algorithm. And more people will find our show, the more five-star reviews that we have. So if you like it, leave us a review. I mean, it's like five minutes of your life and good karma forever 
some of the podcasts I <laughs> listen to, they like ask questions and they'll be like, yeah, so just tell us what you think of this movie in a five-star review for our show. <laughs> you can contact us anytime, not by email, but through the Apple five-star review interface. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I mean, it's sad that, you know, the world works that way, but that's how it works. Algorithms, the mm-hmm. destruction of us all. Yeah, yeah. So, you know... Just show us a little love and help some people find find us. And if you want to put a tongue twister in there, mm. we'll read it. Oh, my God. We'll that's... see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Somebody could really trip us up. That would be really easy to do for me. Well, especially since the right when we hit record, it's like, how do I read? <laughs> how does this happen <laughs> what again? What do we do? <laughs> My God, I was so nervous for the last one. So well, behind we the scenes, we're, yeah, we're recording two today. This is the second one. I was so nervous. I was like, my face was getting flushed. And I mean, it's just you and me. I'm in a room by myself. But I was like, what happens? <laughs> Unless there's a bunch of British ghosts that you can't see. <laughs> Maybe. I just need to get shoved out of a window and then all will become clear. You could be British in your neck of the woods. Yeah, you know, from way back. Way, way back. Way back in the 1990s. (laughs) When that British couple lived there. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So, are you ready to jump into this week? Yeah, I think this is gonna... Oh, I was trying to do something so stupid. (laughs) I was like, yeah, listeners, we really cooked up a good episode for you. (laughs) Uh, I think you should keep that in there. But I bailed, and now it's even worse. (laughs) With that mess of an intro, do you want to jump right in? (laughs) Okay. All right. Today, we are going to talk about probably the least famous megastar in American music. Now, I mean, if you want to add us, you can. I I think that might be somewhat divisive, but you know his voice, you know his songs, and you might even know his name, but I think there's a decent chance that you don't know his whole story. Sam Cooke, also known as the King of Soul, and the artist behind hits You Send Me, A Change is Gonna Come, Cupid, Chain Gang, Wonderful World, Another Saturday Night, and Twist in the Night Away. He was born Samuel Cook, with no E, in Clarksdale, Mississippi, on January 22nd, 1931. And as a part of the Great Migration that we talked about in last week's episode, Sam's family moved from Mississippi to Chicago in 1933, and settled in the Bronzeville neighborhood of the south side of Chicago. Sam's talent for singing was obvious really early on, and he sang uh, with his first band at age six. It was called The Singing Children and included his siblings. He was one of eight children. At 14, he received his first bit of acclaim as lead singer for The Highway QCs, a gospel group. And he followed that up as lead singer for The Soul Stirrers from 1950 to 1957. 
And that was the year when Sam added the E to his last name and released his first crossover soul R&B hit, You Send Me. Can we play just a bit of that here, Andrew? Because I feel like people may not recognize the name, but as soon as you hear those first chords, you're going to know what we're talking about. Darling, you we'll find a way. All right. Now, I'm not going to go too much into detail about Sam's career at this point. Um, I'm sure Andrew will get there, but I'm just going to say that over the next seven years, Sam had over 30, 30, 30 top 40 hits in the United States. And he headlined with Ray Charles, Otis Redding, Lou Rawls. He hung out with Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Sam Cooke was a legit megastar. His name belongs in the pantheon of one-named musical geniuses with Aretha, Elvis, Prince, Jimmy, Whitney, Elton, all of those. But Sam was more than that, and this is where the story diverges from the mainstream accounts of his life and his death. Sam, by all accounts, was a great guy, affable and warm, if not the world's best husband, as we'll see in a little bit. He had many strong friendships in the music industry and outside of it. He was also really intelligent and a keen business person. In 1961, he formed his own record label, publishing imprint, and management firm. At the same time, Sam had become deeply involved in the civil rights movement and black power. While touring, he spent time in the area his family had moved from when he was a baby, and he was appalled by what he saw in the Jim Crow Deep South. You can see this reflected in his famous 1964 protest song, A Change Is Gonna Come, which begins, I was born by the river in a little tent. Oh, and just like the river, I've been running ever since. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change is gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. The song was influenced most directly by an incident that happened to him in Louisiana. He and his wife and friends were turned away from a Holiday Inn. And Sam was furious and he made a scene and demanded to speak to the manager. His wife pleaded for him to calm down and said to him, they'll kill you. And Sam simply replied, they ain't gonna kill me because I'm Sam Cooke. Sam and his friends were arrested later that evening for disturbing the peace, but the outcry from black Americans was swift and fierce. And I think this is, you know, just a slice of kind of the larger racial currents happening in America at that time. Sam became more vocal about civil rights after touring in the South, and in interviews, he talked about it and seemed to have made a conscious choice at that point to risk his popularity with white audiences, which was considerable in spite of the rampant racism at the time, and to use his public platform to promote change. Long before that, though, Black Pride was really a fundamental part of Sam's identity. In fact, he is credited as the driving force behind the Afro hairstyle of the 1960s, which he promoted eloquently and frequently within his social circles as an important symbol and statement for Black people. When Sam first began wearing his hair natural in 1958, 
the vast majority of black Americans straightened their hair to approximate the styles of white people popular at the time. And this was almost exclusively the case with black performers for whom the soul crushing task of code switching and self erasure was considered just part of the job. And through this lens, you can see that really everything Sam did tied back to his dedication to social justice and equity. His record label, for example, it wasn't just a way for him to increase his own wealth, although that was part of it. He saw firsthand how artists were exploited in record deals and cheated out of royalties. His goal in creating the label and management company, according to his friends, was to, in today's terminology, disrupt the entire recording industry, making it more equitable for all musicians, specifically artists of color. So when A Change is Gonna Come came out in early 1964, it could be said that public and private personas of him were coming together in a really powerful way. The country and Sam himself were on the brink of something really momentous. But by the end of that year, that momentous promise had come to an end when Sam was fatally shot at the age of 33 in Los Angeles. The basic facts of the killing are fairly straightforward. And I say fairly because some, some pieces of this are in question. But in the early morning of December 11th, the manager of the Hacienda Motel, Bertha Franklin, shot Sam in the chest inside her office and he died in that location. Beyond that though, there's very little evidence except witness accounts of the crime and the shooter's own version of events. According to Franklin, Sam and a companion, later identified as Elisa Boyer, had checked into the motel earlier that night. And then sometime later, Sam began banging and yelling outside the manager's office, wearing only one shoe and a sport coat and demanded to know, where's the girl? Franklin told him there was no girl with her, but he broke through the door and began searching around. Again, according to Franklin, they quote-unquote tussled, and Franklin was able to get a hold of a 22 caliber pistol from where she stowed it for security. She then shot him once in the chest at close range. Sam continued to come after her, according to her statement, so Franklin reported that she beat him with a broom handle until he collapsed. Franklin had been on the phone with the motel's owner at the time that he burst in, and she was the one who called the police. And in her eventual statement, the owner, Evelyn Carr, corroborated Franklin's version of events. Around the same time, a call to the police was also lodged from a nearby phone booth. That call was placed by 22-year-old Elise Boyer. Boyer also corroborated Franklin's version in that she established what had happened in her account before the scene at the motel office. Namely, that Sam had taken her to the motel against her will under the pretense of giving her a ride home. And once in the room, he took his clothes off, stripped her clothes off, and intended to rape her. When he went into the bathroom, she fled, according to her statement, accidentally taking his clothes with her as she fled. She got dressed in a hallway and ran to the manager's office for help, Bertha Franklin. When Franklin refused to let her in, according to her, she was afraid that the man Elisa was running from would follow her and become violent. When she refused to let her in, Elisa ran to a nearby phone booth to call police. So this is the story that most people know about Sam's death. And this story, I think, contributed to Sam's legacy being downplayed throughout the years and is part of why, at least in white culture, 
I think he's not as well known as he should be. Much was made of it being a shameful death. And the thinking was, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? So I think the thinking kind of went, well, even if he wasn't a crazed, drunken rapist, which was the go-to way at the time to demonize a black man, he was up to no good in the middle of the night with someone who was most definitely not his wife. And so people discounted it, I think, and almost didn't care if there were alternate facts to the story that Elise and, and Franklin had given. And of course, the seedy aspects of the story were played to maximum effect in the press. It has a very distinct vibe in the reports that I read of someone, quote, above their station being dressed down. But in spite of that, Sam's wife and loyal friends stood by him and his reputation. He was given two star-studded funerals, one in Chicago and one in L.A., as well as a three-day public viewing in L.A. so his legion of fans could come and pay their respects. And more than that, his friends and business partners cried foul to the police on the official version of that night's events. Right from the jump, they did not believe the official version of events. Sam and his wife had been out to eat earlier that night with Sam's friend and producer and his wife at the posh eatery Martoni's. His friend acknowledged afterwards that Sam had a wandering eye, and he noted that he had last seen Sam at the bar chatting up a young woman after their meal, when Barbara, Sam's second wife, had presumably gone home for the night. Sam and his friend had made plans to meet up later at a nightclub, but Sam didn't show up until just before closing, and he and the woman who turned out to be Elise Boyer were turned away at the door. The two then went to the hacienda and checked in as man and wife, it turned out later from the records. From this point on, the truth of what happened in that room was known only to Boyer. Sam's friends surmised that he must have been set up. Sam, according to them, was a good and decent guy, if a consummate adulterer. I think no one refuted that fact. Mm -hmm. He had never, to anyone's knowledge, been violent with anyone, man or woman. He had a weakness for beautiful women, they agreed, and that could have been used to take advantage of him or worse, to set up an intentional hit. There was talk that Boyer was a sex worker and that she and her pimp had arranged a scene to relieve Sam of a large quantity of money he had been flashing earlier. Under this theory, Boyer lured Sam to the motel with a promise of sex. When he got undressed and went to the bathroom, she tossed his wallet out the window to her pimp and then fled with the story of kidnapping and attempted rape. So it's important to note here that Boyer did not read as a black woman. I wasn't able to find any reliable source that noted how she identified racially herself, but mm -hmm. I think it's safe to say that others would, would not have perceived her as a black woman. So while we, and I can only really speak for myself, but I think I could speak for you, Andrew, we a thousand percent believe women who report sexual assault. We also can't ignore that this is the early 60s and false rape claims by white women against black men that was a very real phenomenon and an ever-present threat to black men at the time. Sam's friends also believed that there was a distinct possibility that the motive went beyond robbery. Remember, handsome, charming, and powerful, Sam posed a real threat to the status quo in the recording industry and through his activity in the civil rights movement. 
Sam was also beginning the process of severing ties with his manager, known dirtbag and fraudster Alan Klein, a move that would have had a devastating financial impact on Klein. So there were many people who may have wanted Sam dead. Friends who viewed Sam's body before his funeral also noted that the wounds to the body did not match the official accounting of events. Specifically, famous in her own right, Etta James wrote in her memoir that Sam's head was quote, practically disconnected from his shoulders. That's how badly he'd been beaten. His hands were broken and crushed. They tried to cover it up with makeup, but I could see massive bruises on his head. No woman with a broomstick could have inflicted that kind of beating against a strong, full-grown man, end quote. And these injuries that, that Etta reported in her memoir were not reported in the official autopsy. Also, no one in the vicinity of the motel reported hearing any gunshots that night, in spite of Franklin claiming to have fired three shots, two that missed him and the one that hit him. But outrageously, if not surprisingly, the police didn't explore any of these possible motives or inconsistencies. They had their, quote, killer. Uh, Boyer and Franklin both passed polygraph examinations and stuck to the same stories throughout interviewing and questioning. Five days after Sam's death, the county held an inquest and quickly came to the conclusion that the killing was a justifiable homicide and that Franklin acted in self-defense. Case closed. Within the Black community, Cook's place in the Pantheon is unquestioned, and there's a strong sense that justice was never served. Muhammad Ali once said, quote, If Cook had been Frank Sinatra, the Beatles, or Ricky Nelson, the FBI would be investigating, end quote. But that very same FBI was at the time keeping civil rights leaders like Ali and Malcolm X under surveillance as potential, I don't know, agitators of the status quo, um, not doing deep investigations into murdered black men. And so any evidence that may have existed was either never collected or never preserved. And honestly, I think it's doubtful that we'll ever fully know what happened to Sam Cooke 57 years ago. I mean, it's so obvious why it's questionable. Mm -hmm. Especially knowing, I mean, having like the understanding of what the government did to civil rights leaders. Yeah. Um, And that's not to say that it's impossible that the accounted for story isn't what happened. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's a like, hard one. Why would Etta James put that in her memoir? Right. If it wasn't true, at the very least, about the bruising. Right. And I mean, a head almost decapitated. Like, that's a very specific, like, gruesome injury that I don't think a woman with a broom or any other thing could do with their bare hands. And we know now that polygraphs don't mean anything and are not real evidence. Right. And I mean, that's if there wasn't some kind of assassination and conspiracy, which would mean that they could have failed the polygraph and, you know, mm-hmm. the fix was in. So, I mean, I think anything is possible in this case because he was he was deeply he was causing deep discomfort for people at high levels in different ways, like within the government, um, the recording industry his own management team. I mean, there were a lot of people who 
whose lives would be easier with him out of the way. And gunshots are loud. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was just so much racism throughout this case. So I tried to read a lot of original sources with these older cases where, you know, if you if you read the Wikipedia or the Murderpedia or any of the accounts, it's mostly the official story with like two sentences about, oh, hey, maybe something weird happened here. Um, so I try to go back to the original sources and read other things. And as I was reading it, one account, and this is from the 80s, I think this was in People magazine in the 80s. It mm-hmm. said, it noted that no one had heard gunshots, but then it said gunshots being such a common thing in this part of South Central. And it's like, really? Really? Like, the fact is, nobody heard gunshots. Maybe it's because, not because this is a terrible crime-ridden, like, you know, place, but because there were no gunshots, you know? And people are nosy. Like, if the police really canvassed door-to-door, not a single person would be like, oh, hell yeah, I heard three gunshots last night. Right, right. No, I know. So, I mean, some folks really feel that he was killed somewhere else and then brought here. You know, I mean, who knows? It could have gone down the way that they said. And and my natural inclination is not to disbelieve women. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, known adulterer. Yeah. And, I mean, not that you have to be a public persona, but there's something about ego mm-hmm. when you're famous. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean... It's like, I believe every every report should be investigated. But I also think, I, I think believe women means and guess, investigate and don't automatically assume no, but it also means don't just automatically assume yes. Yeah. It's like, give it the care and the investigation it deserves because there are people that lie. I mean, yeah. a very small percentage. Yeah. Um, I think according to the FBI, it's like super small. And even like Fox News, they only go up, up, up as high as like 25%, which even still means that 75% of all claims are legitimate with their bullshit number. Right, right. But yeah, I think it is important. Like, believe isn't just a blanket acceptance in spite of evidence. Right, right. And it doesn't mean that women never lie or, yeah, or but, anyone. I mean, yeah, seeing the turbulent times, even if it wasn't the FBI, mm-hmm. like it could have been, it might not be. Mm-hmm. It could have been his powerful manager, the people he was upsetting in the industry. Yeah, It could have been any scheme for money or it could be what happened. But there's definitely not definitive evidence right. the way the police act. Right. And, and the real injustice is in that because they didn't investigate now those things don't exist so it's not like some crimes that we've covered where they investigate but the technology didn't exist at the time and now they can go back i mean they just did not and sources from within the police department you know i mean the los angeles police department we won't go into detail but you know i mean the corruption and the racism um Mm -hmm. that they themselves admit to now was rampant at the time and people from within the department went on the record as saying you know 
nobody within the department cared. It was just another another black guy, basically, is how they approached it. Um, and even though his privilege from being a famous musician helped him at certain times, in the end and in this case, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough mm-hmm. to get even you know, a normal amount of investigation, never mind above and beyond what a celebrity might get in today's times. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. And so this is a really interesting one in terms of the culture because unlike someone like Selena... Sam Cooke's death has not found its way into movies and TVs. So I'm going to focus more on his enormous personal impact on pop culture and the musical legacy that he's left behind. So uh, like you mentioned, Sam is considered to be a pioneer and one of the most influential soul artists of all time. He's commonly referred to as the King of Soul, Uh, And that really came from a lot of different areas. So it was like his distinctive vocals, his notable contribution to the genre, so the songs, the lyrics, and his overall significance in popular music in general. So I think you covered a bit of this, but yeah, he was the lead singer of the Soul Stirrers first. And then after going solo, he released that string of hit songs. And I'll repeat, I, I know you listed them, but just... It's insane to think about these songs. You Send Me, A Change Is Gonna Come, Cupid, Wonderful World, Chain Gang, Twisting the Night Away, Bring It On Home To Me, so many more. And the fact that in just over eight years, 30 top 40 singles on the Billboard Pop Singles chart. Yeah. And like, this isn't today. Right. (laughs) This isn't YouTube videos. Like, this isn't the quest for the most number ones top 40 was very hard Mm -hmm. in a way that not that it's not hard because there's so many people competing but like top 40 is not that hard if you have a label behind you Mm -hmm. like you don't even get credit for like a top 20 hit anymore yeah we didn't have internet we didn't have social media it was all radio games it like to get on there at that time so i just want people to understand how impressive that is Mm -hmm. where if you were to say somebody now has a bunch of top 40 hits it's like oh okay well just 40 yeah Uh, but anyway he also had 20 singles in the top 10 of billboard's black singles chart massively successful i mean just unbelievably successful and of course a change is going to come one of the most influential songs of the time, of all time. Um, in, re- in like reality, it was a very modest hit for him in comparison to his previous singles. But it's widely considered one of his greatest and most influential compositions and has been voted among the greatest songs ever released by tons of publications. Um, and I didn't realize the song was released posthumously mm-hmm. in 1964. But when Sam wrote it, it was a response to... Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind at Night. And I don't have the direct quote, but I remember reading that he was saying he heard that song and was like, 
I can't believe this white guy wrote this song and that he felt embarrassed that he'd never written a song from his own point of view as a black American, especially in such turbulent, vicious times. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote that song in response to Dylan. And, you know, it's a song about faith and reckoning, and it became an anthem for folks struggling with injustices in the world. Mm -hmm. And the song was inspired by various moments. And I think you mentioned the, um, when he and his wife were turned away from the motel in Louisiana. And so, yeah, he felt compelled to write a song that spoke to the struggle of his own life and those around him and his community and his friends and his family. And then it built into this sort of rallying cry with the civil rights movement. And that alone is probably enough to consider the government killing him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I I don't even feel like this is tinfoil hat territory. I think it's well-documented, well-known mm-hmm. what we were not that many decades ago. Definitely. But I did, I found a quote from his brother, L.C. Cook, and he said, quote, It's a song of encouragement. Do you know over 160 people have recorded that song? It's the most recorded song in history, and Sam still has the best version, mm-hmm. end quote. So in 2007, it was selected for preservation in the Library of Congress. And, you know, sort of those qualifiers are that the National Recording Registry deemed the song culturally, historically, or aesthetically important. Mm -hmm. And so sort of in his career, he founded his own label, SAR Records, uh, and that released albums by the Latter-day Soul Sisters, Billy Preston, Mel Carter, Johnny Taylor, just to name a few out of his own label. Mm -hmm. He also owned a publishing and management company called CAGS, which, just a quick pause there. I mean, holy shit, talk about businessman, business mogul. I mean, the things he was able to accomplish as a black man in that time. Yeah. Wow. Seriously. Um, And because he is acknowledged as the pioneer of soul music, his influence directly affected the careers of Aretha Franklin, who he toured with when she was 19, Mm -hmm. Al Green, this is a long list, (laughs) Curtis Mayfield, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson, James Taylor, Michael Jackson listed him as uh, an icon, Bobby Womack, Aaron Neville, L.A. Reid, Julian Casablancas, Rebecca Ferguson, Tupac, Sarah Bareilles, Leon Bridges, it goes on and on and on. I mean, the reverberations affect music mm-hmm. and all of the music that we hear. I mean, maybe not a direct one for one, but it was a, I mean, I hate to say change, thing of change going to come, but it was a change to music in general. Yeah. And so I also, I found another quote. James Brown was chatting on American Bandstand with Dick Clark and he said, quote, What made Brother Sam Cooke so special is he would stand flat-footed and kill you with one song. If I had half the voice that Sam had, I would quit dancing. End quote. (laughs) Wow. And of course it goes beyond musical boundaries. Uh, His music influenced President Obama's 2008 victory speech. um, And even the whole campaign of change. Mm -hmm. And directly linking into this song, I mean... When we think about impacts on our lives and culture, that's an in- incredible, I mean, massive to the nth degree. Yeah. And of course, his music's been featured in infinite movies, too many to count. Um, 
probably top among them was Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of turns into movies where Sam himself has been featured. Mm-hmm. So he was portrayed in the Buddy Holly story, a 1978 biographical film which tells the real life story of Buddy Holly. And that film earned $14.3 million off of a budget of $1.2. So it was box office successful. So people paid to see it. Mm-hmm. And it also has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, I remember when that movie came out. And it was, it was a big deal. And it was, it was a good movie. Yeah. So the New York Times has placed it on its best thousand movies ever list. The film won the Academy Award for Best Adaptation Score. And Gary Busey, who played Buddy Holly, was nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role. Which, depending on your age, Gary Busey used to be a legitimate actor and not like just a wild reality TV person. (laughs) Um, And then Sam is also the main character in the play and feature film are are one of the main characters in the play and feature film One Night in Miami. Mm -hmm. So the play was written by Kemp Powers. It debuted in 2013, and it's a fictional account of the real night of February 25th, 1964. It pinpoints a pivotal moment in the lives of four Black American icons whose potential thoughts and actions played out over a 90-minute one-act play. So the four characters are... The newly crowned world boxing champion Cassius Clay, as he's transitioning into becoming Muhammad Ali, Nation of Islam leader Malcolm X, star NFL running back Jim Brown, and of course Sam Cooke. Mm-hmm. So Powers won the Ted Schmidt Award for Outstanding World Premiere of a New Play, and the production won three LA Drama Critic Circle Awards, four NAACP Theater Awards, and LA Weekly Theater Award for Playwriting and Direction. It then went on to premiere in London in 2016, also to critical acclaim. And in 2019, it was announced that actress and icon Regina King was going (laughs) to direct the film adaptation. And just a quick aside, Regina King is one of my favorite actors ever. Yeah. She is incredible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to the episode at hand, (laughs) we could have a whole episode (laughs) just talking about... We can come back to her, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) how great she is and how incredible this sort of Regina King renaissance has been Mm -hmm. as of late. Mm -hmm. I love her. Definitely. But so the movie had its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival in September of 2020 and was the first film directed by an African-American woman to be selected in the festival's history. Wow. Which pretty shameful that that's 2020. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. So it earned three Academy Award nominations for Best Supporting Actor for Leslie Odom Jr., who played Sam, Mm -hmm. Best Adapted Screenplay for Kemp Powers, and Best Original Song. And Regina was nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Director and the Critics' Choice Award for Best Director. And then, so I, I was aware of this. I watched the movie, but all over Twitter was like nonstop calls that Leslie Odom Jr. needs to be Sam Cooke in a biopic. Mm-hmm. So fingers crossed that could be something that's in the works, especially after his Academy Award nomination for the role. Yeah. But back to the film, it definitely renewed interest in Sam's music. So um, the, the film premiered in theaters on Christmas of 2020. So 
I was about to say not that long ago, but time doesn't make any sense, and it was a little bit of a time ago. <laughs> um, and then it was released on on streaming January 15th. So very soon after, that was because of the pandemic. It was not a full theatrical release, not a full theatrical run. But in January of this year alone, Sam Cooke's music had 20 million streams and sold 15,000 albums. Wow. That's fantastic. Almost all of which was accredited to the film. Yeah. Kind of looking at his legacy and, again, there's not sort of the culture. No one's really portrayed the murder, the events. That just hasn't happened. So this is more so looking at his posthumous honors and just sort of his legacy in general. But in 86, he was inducted as a charter member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In 87, he was inducted in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. 89, he was inducted a second time into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fames when the Soul Stirrers were inducted. Mm-hmm. 94, he received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Um, and although he never won a Grammy while he was alive, he received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1999. In 2004, Rolling Stone ranked Cook 16th on its list of 100 Greatest Artists of All Time. Wow. In 2008, he was named the fourth greatest singer of all time by Rolling Stone. Also 2008, he received the first plaque on the Clarksdale Walk of Fame located at the New Roxy Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2009, he was honored with a marker on the Mississippi Blues Trail in Clarksdale, mm-hmm. which the Mississippi Blues Trail is very cool. And they have markers all around the state. They're like the historical mar- markers and they're blue. Mm-hmm. And it has facts and location and information about the history of blues throughout the state. Oh, that's cool. So we would look at those as we did like road trips and stuff. Yeah. Um, in 2011, the city of Chicago renamed a portion of East 36th Street near Cottage Grove Avenue as the honorary Sam Cooke Way to remember the singer near a corner where he hung out and sang as a teenager. Mm-hmm. In 2013, he was inducted in the National Rhythm and Blues Music Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, And the the founder of the Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame, Lamont Robinson, said he was the greatest singer ever to sing. Mm -hmm. Uh, The words, a change is going to come, you know, from the song of the same name are on the wall of the contemplative court, a space for reflection in the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Mm -hmm. And that museum opened pretty recently, just 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, He was inducted into the Mississippi Musicians Hall of Fame. Uh, In 2020, Dion released a song and music video as a tribute to Cook called Song for Sam Cook here in America featuring Paul Simon. And so, a a simply incredible musical legacy. More than 50 years after his death, Sam Cooke remains a force to be reckoned with. The best way to sum up the career of a man that paved the way for so many is very simple, and his brother said it best. Quote, Sam was the king of soul. Whether they were affected or not, everybody out here was influenced by Sam in some kind of way. Sam got that longevity. Once you hear his voice... You can't help but just love it. End quote. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. And he was 33. I mean, all of that, and he was only 33. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I understand why the official account would also tarnish his legacy. But when you think of the things that other singers have gotten away with, it's like, well, clearly racism was a part of this legacy as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's dripping with it in every way, at every level. It's it's pretty disgusting because, again, it can't be undone. It's not like, okay, well, now that our society is, and I'm rolling my eyes as I say this, like more enlightened and, you know, mm-hmm. we can go back and and find out what really happened and give him justice. There will never be justice for him because I think this case, the answer is unknowable because of decisions that were made when it happened. And again, that's not to say that the official account is for sure wrong. Right. But with the evidence, with the information we have, I feel confident going on record saying it's only one of several possible explanations. And I I think they're all equally plausible, again, because of decisions that were made then. But it's definitely, I mean, one of the most impactful singer-songwriters in American history. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I said at the beginning, you know, add us if you want. It's a a pretty kind of bold claim to say that he's a least well-known megastar because... He's super well-known. Yeah. But, I mean, he should be above Elvis, above Jimmy, above, you know, he was the original and paved the way for so many. Um, And I feel like he doesn't get that level of recognition. And I feel like we, yeah, we, he's well-known, we know who he is, but it's more so that thing of, okay, I want to ask you to list the five most influential odds are he's not on the list. Yeah. And that's just uh, like that duality mm-hmm. of, yeah, of course we know him. We know the success, but when you think of who were the powerful, who are the influence makers, who are the best? Because I fully agreed with your statement about least known megastar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, part of it for me was I've always been a fan and I kind of vaguely knew that the circumstances around his death were strange, but I watched, I watched a movie on Netflix. It is called, um, remastered the two killings of Sam cook. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a really good documentary. Um, so just go and watch it if you're interested in this. But also to, you know, to hear the way that his friends and acquaintances talked about him and the person that he was. And regardless what happened that night, those things, I think, remain true. Um, and that, I think, was lost in, in that tarnishing of his legacy. Is, I, mm-hmm. I think the most that people would say coming away from the mainstream explanation was, well, he was a good singer, but like the part, him being a brilliant business person and him being, you know, part of the civil rights, like that was all really swept under 
the rug and lost. And so I think the kind of general impression of people who kind of knew things at a surface was just, I mean, that narrative of, oh, crazy drunk black guy doing stuff he shouldn't do, whether it's rape or just adultery, like, but you know, that, that stereotype of the black man as, um, sexual predator. I mean, just all mm-hmm. of those things got so intertwined with his legacy that it just wiped away all of this other stuff. Um, and I think that in itself is a crime and, and just the complete result of the racism around how it was treated in the media by the police, everyone. Yeah. Well, this is definitely a fascinating one. I mean, even just all circumstances aside, the concept of justifiable homicide Mm. is interesting in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I could kind of talk about this one all day. I find it so interesting. The racial aspects, the political aspects, the gender dynamics, you know, there's a lot going on here. And I think it, it's just, it's kind of a, what is it? (laughs) It's just, I don't know the word you were looking for, but I agree with you. It's like this confluence point. Yeah. That isn't often replicated. I mean, it's such a once in a, I don't know, million seems too low, but mm-hmm. like the time frame, the circumstances, the success, the talent, mm-hmm. the racial divide, the civil rights movement, all of it like really is this constellation of fascination coupled with we'll never truly know what happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sad one all around. Like we talked about with Selena, kind of seems like a loss for what he might have done, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that is the part that makes the conspiracy thing so plausible, is that he did seem poised to do really big things um, in a lot of ways. He had that perfect combination of intelligence, charm, talent, and... Mm -hmm you know, um, he was handsome, you know, all the kinds of things that rightly or wrongly American people seem to go for. And he could have had an outsized influence on the direction of the recording industry or of the civil rights movement. Um, so yeah, such an interesting and sad one. Yeah. Well, listeners, thanks for going on this journey with us. We hope you enjoyed. And learned something. And two episodes in a row that we've mentioned Mississippi. Yeah. So maybe my weird plan is working. (laughs) (laughs) No, I joke. It's all happenstance. But we keep circling around the same, you know, time is a flat circle. We'll see. If the next episode mentions it, then... uh, Then it's a thing. Then something has happened. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as always, listeners, we appreciate the hell out of you. 100%. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 